0: Hi, and welcome to Edge with Dr. Stephen Brown. This podcast series focuses on the story, the personal narrative of Australians who have pushed at the edge. They have been pioneers who are doing amazing things that are a little bit different to the everyday. Sometimes their stories are told and well-celebrated, and sometimes these stories are reasonably well-hidden. Dr. Stephen Brown is a highly regarded leader in the education sector, both in Australia and internationally. He is the managing director of the Brown Collective and has a strong interest in people and getting to know their stories. He has developed this podcast series to introduce you to some of Australia's finest citizens.
1: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this episode of EDGE. It's my great pleasure to introduce Kieran Quasto. Kieran, by self-description, is a people professional. I'm fascinated by the description of him, a person who's lived three lifetimes. I only wish I'm that sort of intrigued me for a start. Fascinating career, and I'll let uh, Kieran uh, unpack that. The work he's doing today, and it's my great pleasure to have him as a friend and a professional colleague, somebody who's a Harvard-trained negotiator, and also equally highly trained psychologist and professional coach. Does some exceptional work in terms of workplace investigations as a part of this general HR and people work. So welcome, Kieran, to Edge.
2: Thanks, Steve. It's great to... Uh a guest and I uh, really appreciate the invitation. So some great questions to uh, get me thinking and I'm looking forward to the conversation.
1: In your own reflections, everybody's got a story or a narrative. Take us back uh, into the formative years, that is Kieran Plaster. Yeah,
2: in some ways, Stephen, I look back and I go, it was a very ordinary childhood, especially, but in, in some ways... When you put a different lens on it, I've had an absolutely great journey. So I was born in Air, uh, North Queensland. Um, my mother uh, was from Air. My father was from Sydney, the eastern suburbs of Sydney. And he ended up in North Queensland uh, as a Department of Prime Industries beef cattle advisor. We, were, we lived outside of air for a while. And then we moved to Toowoomba in the Darling Downs. We lived outside of Toowoomba for a little while and then inside of Toowoomba. So I did my... All my schooling in Toowoomba, I went to St Mary's Christian Brothers College from grade five to grade twelve. In many ways, a very ordinary uh, sort of middle class existence. In a lot of ways, we, uh, you know, our our pair, you know, I had four at that time, uh, three three brothers and a sister, so we had five children. My mother didn't work for a long time. My father's public servant. You know, they put us through. You know, the, the Christian Brothers education. We played cricket in the summer and we played rugby league and hockey in the winter. You know, we did all the normal, you know, scouts and, um, you know, sports and, and camping and all sorts of things. But I think when I look back to, you know, the Toowoomba back then was, uh, it's, a, it's a large sort of regional town now, but you know, we would hop on our push bikes with our friends and, and, you know, you would be gone all day till dark, and then the next day, and you had the, you just roamed the city, right? You had this wonderful freedom, and and which I probably, you know, only appreciate now. But um, you know, as as a beef cattle advisor, my father was away a lot. He was also, um, and on holidays we'd uh, we'd we'd go with him, and as he visited cattle properties, and we'd and we'd work uh, with him in the cattle yards, and. So we developed, all of us, I think, a great um, affinity with rural lifestyle and rural people. And it was just a sort of a a nice, good place. Obviously, we had the Christian Brothers and and what they imposed on us and and taught us as young men. So, yeah, very average but, but, but very fulfilling, if that makes sense. Did you like school? That's a great question too. My memories especially high school and especially my last few years no i had some great mates and and i still do have some of those great mates but uh, i started to rebel and i was prepared for the conflict that that brought with the brothers and i rode through that uh, and the teachers but but i was fortunate too to have a few teachers that saw past that and uh, i excelled in english and debating one of my great friendships now, even, uh, is with a fellow, Kev Carmody, yeah. who's a famous Australian songwriter. Obviously, I liked the mateship of school, and I liked I was I was terrible at maths, and so that was a that was a struggle. But I but I was also, by the time I hit, fifteen, I wanted to get out of Toowoomba. You know, I was ready to get on with life. Things had starting to. Uh, Awakened me around travel and music and and reading and uh, the wide world, right? So you know the things that I liked about my sort of Toowoomba teenage years were again, you know, I was uh, I did a lot of boxing, uh, I was interested in karate and uh, so sport, reading English and my mates and music.
1: Wow, sounds like a wonderful uh, romanticised but uh, very interesting boys' own lifestyle. Just you mentioned Kevin there as one of the influences on your life, but uh, he and she and and others, who who have been the major influence that shaped and formed Kieran Posto? Great
2: question and and really caused me to think. I'd have to say say at that stage, uh, in a lot of ways, my mother. My mother is still a very gentle, soft, strong Catholic lady, but very, very resilient, spent, so spent a lot of time bringing up a young family. She finished school in grade 10 and was working in the bank. And I think back then, if we got engaged or something, had to leave the bank, right? So she essentially finished with a grade 10 education. And I can remember when we were growing up in Toowoomba, she put herself through night school at TAFE. She did you know 11 and 12. She then got accepted into what was then the Darling Downs Institute of Advanced Education to do an arts degree so there was always then and I was again in that sort of early teenager just starting to formulate a few thoughts and philosophies and so because she was doing literature there was always a lot of Hemingway and Graham Greene and and the classics lying around and that really was a big influence on me and then she was also and Toowoomba wasn't exactly the arts centre of the world but she would make sure that we went to you know, uh, theatre productions, either either you know Christmas holiday ones or or even later ones, and so I developed a love for the theatre. And I guess too, so that that um, idea of lifelong learning, you know, in terms of leaving school at grade ten wasn't a barrier. And worked part time and studied the theatre, literature, and also you know one of the great things that my mother did for us was insist that we do toastmasters and debating. As, as young men. Now, that was very uh, controversial in our house and also amongst your peer group. But her logic was that at some stage in your life, you're going to have to do a public speech, whether it's at work or at a friend's wedding or something. So you need to never be afraid of public speaking. And I've never forgotten it because I've certainly seen people and still do in the work I do with an incredible fear of public speaking so she was a big influence my wife of 30 years and you know, we got married when we were 24 we had three little three little girls under the age of two you know you can't go through life and spend that long with people without them being influential in how you live your life you know the decisions that you make the paths that you take the support that people give you you know and another fellow Cameron Quinn who was my first uh well, one of my first martial arts instructors who I'm still and that was. You know, in the mid-80s, who I still am in contact today, was a great influencer on how to live your life and and focus and live simplistically, but um, dedicated. But, you know, there's a couple of other things that really made me think, you know, so I say Kev Carmody was important. When I was at university uh, sharing houses during that time, uh, a friend of a friend named John Birmingham asked if he could sleep in our house for a week, and uh, I think he ended up staying a year, and I think he still owes us rent from uh, <laughs> 1987. But he went on to write that book, a uh, famous book. You know, he, he died with a falafel in his hand, and, and I'm chapter three, I think he tells me. But, of course, he was uh, he's become quite a prolific writer, and that was, uh, you know, an influence. There's a couple of really short moments, um, Steve, that when I reflected on this so one I had an uncle my father's brother-in-law who who lived in Sydney and I can remember he came to stay with us for a while on his own when we were in Thornbury and he didn't bring his wife and children and I still have no I still have not got around to ask my mother what was going on there but he came and he'd lived a life very very different from anything I knew he'd been a bar manager in Kings Cross in Sydney mm-hmm. and Anyway, so I must have been around, I don't know, maybe 12, no more than 13, and I can remember vividly, he brought a book called The Ninja by Eric Van Lustbader, and he had two vinyl albums with him. One was Jackson Brown's Running on Empty, and one was Warren Zevon's Excitable Boy. Wow. Yeah, and that was one that's, that book started my whole interest in the East, Eastern philosophy, martial arts, that whole aspect that that is uh part of my interest and also then that that's that sort of lit a spark for for music that i still enjoy and the other thing was then we used to you know as part of this sort of quite quite average toowoomba upbringing we would go to the gold coast for two weeks where my sister had a sister and her husband auntie Mari and uncle john and uh, their elder son had left home. My cousin; he was probably, oh, he's probably ten, maybe twelve years older than me. But he was a journalist, which was already a sort of, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I was always, I was, a, I was by then a sort of um, a short story writer, and, and done work experience at the Toowoomba Chronicle. But when we stayed at his house and he wasn't there, he, I s- slept in his room, and it was full of what was back then called RAM Magazine, Rock Australia Magazine was a yeah. newspaper mm-hmm. and it was all about music, right? And, uh, and, and then he also had these records of the secret policeman's other ball and, and the stand-up <laughs> comedy vinyl and, and a, you know, a massive... So again, that music and writing was so influential to me. And I look back too and you say, what else has been a major influence? Discovering the book Jack Kerouac's On the Road you know, I was probably 13, which described that whole Beatnik lifestyle and the and the travel it sparked it was really influential in, in in my journey. And then, I guess the writings of Ernest Hemingway and and Henry Lawson also. And and a great and my, the other thing my mother gave me was a, a great love of poetry. You know, and I've still got um, poetry books that she gave me from when I was quite a young man. And giving a young man a poetry book at 16 for his birthday, you know. It was at the time, probably not the greatest present I could have received, but I, but I look back at the gift I was given as opposed to the present.
1: Uh, absolutely fascinating, Kieran. I can see all the threads coming together. It's uh, I guess sometimes we people arrive at places seemingly by accident, but when we look at their story, their form, formulation or formative years, there's a reason for what they do and why they do what they do. So this whole question of a rebellious youth rubbing up against authority, uh, the influence of a gentle mother, an interest in negotiation or, let's say, debating a point, you arrive at a, a human-centred sets of careers. One which is fascinating to me is this whole area of a uh, police hostage negotiator but. Perhaps if you could take us there and take us beyond there, and then some of the lessons that I'm fascinated about uh, that in terms of what you've seen in that role.
2: Yeah. So to arrive at that, you know, we were living in Roma. We had three small children. I was doing a little bit of work for the education department. We are also doing a bit of um, cattle work on the side. Drought was bad and mm-hmm. money was a bit tight, and I said, look, i I'd like to join the police. I'd been playing rugby with some detectives and uniformed police and I'd developed this desire to, to solve crime, right? I really thought that that would be a worthwhile thing to do, so I wanted to be a detective. So I joined the police and I very quickly went through training and very quickly, uh, a lot more quicker than was normal, got a position at the Rockhampton CIB. I was very focused on... Um, being a detective, which was a bit of a process back in that day, it took a three-year sort of apprenticeship, and uh, had a detective senior sergeant in charge of the CIB, and, and they'd advertised for negotiator to do a negotiating course. Now, bearing in mind at this stage in the mid '90s, post Queensland Police Reform, they were focused on taking people with degrees, but it was culturally a, a change, so you so you didn't sort of Promote that you had a degree <laughs> in the police culture, and you certainly didn't advertise that you're a psychologist. So I said to the senior sergeant, "I don't want to do the neg- I don't want to be a negotiator, I want to be a detective." And he said, and he was a big imposing man. He said, "You put in an application. You're going on that negotiators course." And a I man not to be argued with. And I did. It's a four-week intensive living immersion course held back then at the Wakefield Prison. And it was a whole eye-opener to me. about I In my training, I'd never even come across, I'd never even been to a situation where negotiators had been called. So that became not only, it's a part-time role in the Queensland Police, so you do your substantive role, but you also do your training and you get called out and blah, blah, blah. So I really embarked on this journey. And then post 9-11, obviously there was a lot of government money for counter-terrorism activities and, and and operations and training. So from that time, I really progressed through, I guess, the negotiation competencies and I became a domestic team leader. I became a counter-terrorist qualified negotiator and then a counter-terrorist qualified negotiator team leader. So, what I learned or what I was able to experience, too, was the opportunity to work with some of the best negotiators across the business and across the country and internationally that really, really took me to the next level in terms of strategic thinking and the art and the craft of negotiating. And you know, when you think about problem solving or you think about you know, establishing rapport or establishing relationships... Try doing it with someone that's at the point of suicide, or try doing it with someone that uh, is armed and barricaded, or try doing it with someone that's potentially hurt or killed their family and found themselves, you know, besieged. So it takes your skill level to to the next level to be a good negotiator, and in fact, even be a great negotiator. So I did that for twelve years, and um, through that period. You know, I was involved in training new negotiators, uh, studying negotiation from both a hostage-taking perspective, a crisis intervention perspective, and then ultimately when I left the police, going to Harvard and being accepted into their uh, negotiation and strategic decision-making program. So I guess some of the things I learned, Steve, and that I try and apply uh, as a negotiator in, in all the work that I do now is a real understanding that and of course this is you know one of the cornerstones of psychology but but uh, really comes to the pointy end when the rubber meets the road everybody carries their invisible backpack right and everybody is you know their you know their values their attitudes, their beliefs their thoughts, their experiences, their biases and everybody carries that round and no individual that I ever negotiated with, ever really woke up that day and decided to, you know, end up in a situation uh, that required an intervention. It, it was a case of all roads leading to this point in some cases, you know, and as as a character in the Hemingway book, um, I think it's The Sun Also Rises, one character asks another character, how would you go bankrupt? And he says, well, gradually, then suddenly. And very much, I think, the human experience where we get to some Points in life is very, very much like that. So, so one of the opening lines that I I would always use in in trying to establish engagement with a with a subject was, you know, my name's Kieran, uh, I'm here to help. I never identified myself as a police officer or my rank person. What's happened to bring you to this point? You know, so really trying to acknowledge that, you know, there was there was things that had gone on and were going on. And then it was a case over hopefully a very quick period to work out how are we going to resolve this? You know, let's adopt a joint problem-solving approach here. How are we going to resolve it? What does it look like for us to walk out, gun down, put the knife down, you know, let people go, whatever? So I learned, so really, you know, really reinforced my beliefs in um, you know, understanding people. And what you saw and what you heard only potentially the tip of the iceberg, right? It was all the stuff underneath that you needed to be curious about to try and create a rapport, a relationship, and then and then a um an outcome. Quite often, in being called or contacted as a negotiator to come and attend, quite often you would arrive and things would be quite chaotic. You know, there was um the negotiators, I guess, were perceived as a little bit mythical, you know, come and Come and do your stuff and fix this. And uh, it would be regardless of rank or whether plain clothes or uniform, quite quite often things were chaotic. So everybody was looking at you to one, do your magic and you know, ultimately, you know, resolve this and quickly, because no one really likes extended situations. They make the news and it's bad for business. So what I learned too is it was really important to provide the calm and the chaos. Right, to really be seen as collected, competent, calm, confident, and really throwing that fire blanket over everything to say, okay, it's okay. We are going to resolve this. Okay, nobody's getting hurt on my watch, and we will get through this. Uh, in a lot of cases, you know, negotiation and mediation is like going from the swamp of the past. Through the Valley of Death into the Promised Land. <laughs> so it was a bit like, okay, we're in this valley, okay, but we're going to get through it. And as I often quote, as Winston Churchill said, if you're going through hell, keep going. So that was about the, the calm and the chaos, right? The other thing I think really, and this is one of the greatest, you know, gifts I think I could use to try and try and give young negotiators, new negotiators, was when you're called to a situation and a person's in crisis and things have happened. And there's a sense of out of control and backed into a corner and there's a lot of police outside and everybody's heightened. It's really important that as a negotiator, you be 100% present. You show up. You don't have the luxury of thinking, who's going to do my work? I wonder how long I'm going to be here for. I hope somebody's going to pick my kids up from school. You know, blah, blah, blah. You have to be 100% focused on that person and what's going on for them and then you both in order to resolve this. And I speak about the difference between listening and hearing. Sometimes you can listen to the words but if you're not on your game, you won't hear what the person's trying to say. And so quite often as a negotiator, we would try always to work in pairs so that someone was trying to hear and feed you. You might've been the, the mouthpiece talking someone else is really trying to hear what's going on and it really taught me to 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 the difference between also listening to understand as opposed to listening to problem solve you know and I think that was a, a real takeaway and I apply again that in in working with leaders and teams don't sometimes we get a little bit hardwired to uh listen to people where we're already one step ahead in trying thinking we're we're trying to assist with the problem And and I think especially as Married men, I'm sure we've all heard this. You're not listening to me, or you know, I don't want you to fix it, just listen to me. So quite often a, a reminder. The other thing is, we would always try and, and I would certainly try and teach, try and know a little bit about a lot of things. Because the first thing you've got to do after you get through ritual, hi, my name's Kieran, is try and establish some small talk and then some sort of a hook. You know, what can I talk to you about? If I see you wearing a Rugby league jersey, do you like the North Queensland Cowboys? I'm a Broncos fan, Okay, which I'm not, but uh, any sort of connection that will start to build rapport and can escalate you through relationship so you can get to joint problem solving. So always be aware of a little bit about a lot of things to try and connect and trying to work out what is important for people that you can make a human connection. Because that's the other thing, mate, and I think you know we're seeing this post lockdown right humans and as a psychologist i do believe we're essentially tribal right we like we we like mm-hmm. engagement we like the the social contact you know work is is work in many ways but, but we've seen with people in in hard lockdowns the the mental health issues that come from social isolation so people want to be listened to they want to be connected to they want to hear their name you know being spoken and all that as a negotiator was very Very critical. And I think the other thing is really something I learned and certainly applied in my post-negotiated life, especially in human resources, is is what I call the dignity of exit. And Mm. if you're arguing with someone, which is not a great thing anyway, but if you're in a situation with somebody and you've backed them into a corner, they have no option but to, to fight their way out. And really what we should be doing is allowing an avenue by which people can uh, leave a situation or an organisation or a business or a role or whatever with their dignity. And so even if in the years since when I've worked at human resources, especially, or in leadership roles, if you got to a point where through a disciplinary process or a performance management process that somebody was potentially to be terminated, I would always allow that person to resign and would bring me into conflict sometimes with, with different uh, other leaders and organizations. And so I know you should have terminated him. It doesn't matter. They've exited the business. And if they, if they want to construct a narrative around how they exited versus the reality, that's fine. They've still left the business. And I think, um, you know, we sometimes forget that in our desire to sort of impose sort of outcomes on people, and I think the, you know, I think it was Jordan Peterson said, um, you, know, you should never argue with someone that someone loses because if you do that often enough, they become a loser, and and no one likes to be a loser. Yeah, so so uh, you know, a lot of lessons, a lot of you know things that crystallised for me in in the work that I do now, right? And like you say, sometimes we can only make sense of our lives by looking back on it.
1: Yeah, very true. And uh, what's the Kieran Posto story now and what's left to do? Is it that book you want to write to be the next uh, Hemingway uh, yeah or two or <laughs> yeah. collector or something? Or are you going yeah. to be um, Powderfingers sort of uh, yeah. drummer or something? Yeah, yeah. no, well, again, ra-
2: I think it was your comment, romanticise things or reality, right? I'm a really bad surfer and I'm an even worse guitar player, but I do like to write and I am, I've got a concept in my head uh, especially for, I think, men's resilience and certainly men our age. Um, I've certainly mm-hmm. seen, probably w- witnessed it in some cases, where men that work, uh, that, that assume almost their identity for, f- through work and when they retire or they're made redundant, we've seen that in COVID, you possible, know, a mental place. Sort of, I've got this concept around what I'm calling the Pathfinder project where it's not necessarily to be perfect at the end but it's about being a little bit better each day right and if we can just go a little bit further and, and we can dig ourselves out of a hole the other thing I learned especially during my time as a detective Steve and I was in towns for 5 years in um, child protection and sex offenders was that we have uh, all of us have a bucket And it can be a bucket of compassion. can be a bucket of courage. It can be some other qualities that, depending on the work that we do, can withdraw from the bucket. So especially in working with child victims of sex assault and sex offenders, I used to say to young detectives, you're given a bucket of of compassion. And whether you know it or not, you're emptying that bucket in sometimes the work that you do. And if you don't know what refills your bucket, then one day the bucket can be empty. And I think it's important in life if we work in roles that are particularly extracting on us, that we have outside support, influences, activities, our health, uh, all those things that make up resilience to refill your bucket. Because as Nish said, right, if you stare into the abyss, sometimes the abyss stares into you. Mm. So it's important. To, so, there a, so there is a, you know, I, like, I do like to write. I don't do it well enough um, or often enough. I'm doing a master's in conflict resolution and, and management. I think there's a, a real space for especially leaders to develop greatest, greater greater uh, skills, attributes, and I guess capability in, in having difficult conversations and in diffusing potentially toxic workplaces before they become toxic. And unfortunately, some of the investigations I do are a little bit around that gradually, then suddenly, where there certainly was a build-up that wasn't addressed, maybe in, in relationships that that end that take us to a certain point. So I'm doing coaching. I'm a certified mediator, accredited mediator. So I do mediations, investigations, workshop facilitation. But I really try and focus on how will. You or your organisation, or the team, or this uh, these people in conflict, how will they be better for this experience that we're going to go through together? Whether it's an investigation or a mediation, or you know, a strategic workshop, how do I bring all my experience, all my storytelling, all my knowledge, all the things that I've learned? How do I bring that now to the point where? You can sort of add, I hate saying add value, but you can you can assist people to be better. And so going forward, you know, I was thinking about what does the future hold? It's almost like, so 55, you know, you're your potentially in your final trimester. Maybe this, you know, your, your kids are, you know, my girls are 29 and the twins are 26. They got grandkids. You really are in, in a next phase. What's important, right? How do you measure success? It's up to you to how you're remembered, right, or your legacy. That's for other people to determine. But I think very simplistically through the work I do and other things, it's like, I think it was Marcus Aurelius said, you know, be of good character and do good deeds. And is there anything more than that? I'm not too sure.
1: Kieran, uh, that's a brilliant note on which to conclude this episode of Edge. Thank you so much. On behalf of so many, many people, uh, many communities, uh, many individuals, that people may not know the difference you've made to other people's lives and the contribution, the gifts of friendship, the expertise you bring, the innate ability to uh, support and read people, to make a positive aspiration in terms of every engagement. I'm one of those people who count you as... a a friend and a, a great Likewise. colleague. Likewise. Yeah. Such a, a dynamic interview. I've really got plenty to think about. I know our listeners will just lap this uh, <laughs> up and there's many things that stimulated further conversation as I'm sure our audience will. So, Kieran Plasto, thank you for the wonderful work you do and continue to do. And I hope many of our listeners make contact with you and. Uh, Asked you to write a book, play their <laughs> song or whatever, or uh,
2: yeah.
1: collect the rent that you've uh, obviously got to over that. Birmingham. <laughs> Birmingham. Pay the rent, JB. Pay the rent. Yeah, <laughs> well, we'll send him a copy of Edge. So, Kieran, appreciate all your work.
2: Thanks, mate. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity and I really do value our friendship and relationship. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us today. You can follow Dr. Stephen Brown on LinkedIn and Twitter on at Dr. Stephen Brown one Please join us next time for another episode of EDGE.